Welcome to the Designated Drinker Show, the podcast that's raising the bar on craft cocktails. I am your host, Louise Solace, and with me, as always, is my very talented friend, who I can't imagine would ever wear a bonnet, the mixtress DC Gina. Hi, Louise. <laughs> Hi, lovely. How are you? Um, I'm good. I, I think I would wear a bonnet. Sometimes I, I have a bee in my bonnet. And then I have to get it out. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's when it's when you take the bonnet off, right? You wouldn't want to keep it on because I might, might hurt a little bit. Uh, just an expression, Louise. Just an expression. I know. I love it. I love it. All right. I actually was trying to work that in, but I didn't know how. Anyway, you stole it. Here we go. But you know who would wear a bonnet, Gina? A good Quaker woman, that's who. Which brings me to a pretty audacious Quaker woman, if you ask me. And her name was Lucretia Mott. Now, Lucretia had a humble Quaker beginning, but don't let that fool you. She turned out to be one of the most fierce opponents of slavery and sexism. And according to history, Lucretia was one of the most radical feminist reformers of her day. She fought tirelessly for equal voting, education, and economic rights for all of us. She was truly a 19th century feminist. There's a lot of is coming. Activist, <laughs> abolitionist, social reformer, and pacifist and she played a major role in launching the women's rights movement. Now, as a Quaker, Lucretia believed all people were equal, no matter gender, race, or creed. And she spent her entire life fighting for social and political reform on behalf of women and people of color. She helped establish the Philadelphia Female Anti-Slavery Society in 1833. And she also co-wrote the Declaration of Sentiments in 1848 for the first women's rights convention in New York. And all of this is what ignited the fight for women's suffrage. So I don't know about you, Gina, but I'm kind of feeling like a slacker. That's on you, Louise. <laughs> <laughs> but it's... I mean, I don't know. Did you ever see Hamilton? The world was changing, so I'm going with it. Yeah, yeah. She's, I mean, she did an awful lot for a lot of people. So speaking of renegade women brings me to today's designated drinkers. Yes, I said drinkers. I'm not slurring, although I do from time to time. Don't judge me. Uh, please welcome <laughs> from the Betsy Ross House in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, director Lisa Aker Mulder. And along with her is none other than Betsy Ross herself. Welcome to the show, ladies. Good day, indeed. Thank you for having us. Thanks for coming. Welcome. And, and Betsy, you traveled far and wide to get here. You, like, time traveled. That's amazing. We've never had that before. I certainly believe I have crossed a few <laughs> centuries. I do. <laughs> I loved it. So This is great. Ladies, please tell us, tell our listeners all about, let's just jump right in. Tell us about the Betsy Ross House, will you please? Sure. So... Uh, we've been a historic house museum for a very long time, one of the earliest. We were founded in 1898, um, and so we've been, you know, open for a really long time, sharing the story of the first American flag. Uh, but about maybe 15 years ago, we sort of started changing our interpretation away from the flag-centric interpretation that we've been telling for over 100 years to the story of um, middle-class working women, because that's what makes us so unique. You know, so many historic house museums throughout the country share the stories of wealthy, powerful men living on these rural estates, and we're the exact opposite. I mean, we're a tiny 
little uh, 1200 square foot row home um, in an urban environment and the home of not just one uh, 18th century working class woman, but multiple. Um, so those are the stories we focus on at the Betsy Ross house now. So of course, Betsy um, lived there from 1776 to 1779. So we interpret um, not just that period in her life, um, but you know the entire expanse of her life. That's so awesome. That is, I, I unfortunately have not been there, but I can't wait till we get past all of this and I can visit Philly again and uh, make sure that put put that on my list. But Betsy, I have a question for you, and and I'm sure our listeners are dying to know: Is are the rumors about you and George Washington true? Just how well did you know him? Oh my dear, such a thing to ask of a. Quaker woman, please, I shall set thyself into a comfort to never have any fear. There was nothing that was not of a, an impropriety. There was no impropriety between Washington and myself. Oh, my gracious, what does the people in my time would think of me? And not only that, remember, I was a young widow when I worked for him and Washington was married. And a bit of an old man <laughs> for me. Understand that. A girl has to have her standards, no matter what century she's from. <laughs> well, I've also, I would say, know a little bit about love, having been married myself now three times. Please, I must make it clear. Oh, my dear. Oh, thou hast hesitated. I shall tell everyone she hesitated when I said such a thing. I'm no longer the young woman I was. But if I would say all my names together, it is Elizabeth Griscom Ross Ashburn Claypool. More names than one woman needs. But it is because I have married three times. Yes, you were Quaker, not Mormon. Uh. (laughs) Well, and there's a bit more to that story, perhaps. (laughs) (laughs) So, Lisa, tell us, um, you touched on it, but how you've changed, how the museum has changed um, recently and how you're approaching things differently. I think it's really interesting that... You, it seems like it's just history based, but really, again, you're touching on so much more about how women played such an important role. Yeah, I mean, of course, almost everybody knows who Betsy Ross is. Um, but through Betsy's story, we get to tell the story of other women who you most likely haven't heard of. You know, the story of other working class women in Philadelphia at the time who you're not going to learn about from watching Hamilton or, um, you know, in your history class. So we tell the story of Mary Craythorne, who was a 18th century chocolate maker who ran her upholstery shop literally around the corner from from uh, Betsy's house um, and Betsy's upholstery shop. Uh, we tell the story of Hannah Lithgow, who owned the house that Betsy lived in. Betsy just rented a couple of rooms there. Um, so it's really interesting that we get to tell these, these diverse stories. Um, and we do it through first person interpretation. So when you come to the Betsy Ross house, every day you will meet Betsy. She's always there um, working on upholstery proje- projects. And we're the only 18th century upholstery shop in the country. Or on a special occasion, you may find Mary Craythorne um, making chocolate and even giving you a little sample to taste before you leave. So, you know, these are the ways that um, we can engage people who aren't even interested in history. You know, you may 
people um, who really, who leave the Betsy Roth house leave thinking, oh, maybe I do like history after all, because they're so used to these like velvet rope tours where the tour guide's telling you all these facts that you really don't care about. But at the Betsy Roth house, you can come and interact with the first person interpreter um, who will tailor the conversation to your interests. And you often leave thinking that you truly stepped back in time and met somebody from history and make that, um, that connection to your own life. That's awesome. That that I think that um, I think that's key. And Gina, you would know better than I do about how children really start to absorb this information is more through an experience as opposed to to your point, just somebody spewing statistics or time dates towards at you. Um, it's hard to absorb that or even to even make it relatable. Yeah, you have to. Yeah, well, no, I. So here's a fact. I've been to Philadelphia quite a bit being from New York and I've been to the Betsy Ross house with my parents a while ago. I would say I was probably 12. So oh, just like talking, a couple years ago, like what, four you know, or five years ago? You know, I'm only, I'm only a tender 21. No, well, I, we're talking 25 years ago. I a hundred percent when I went, it was what I remember the most about it was going into the first room and it wasn't like, what you're describing. So I don't know when that might have changed. You said about 10, how many years? Yeah, you you're absolutely right. I think it was about, so I've been director of the Betsy Ross house for 12 years, um, but I've been at the Betsy Ross house for 20 years. So for the first eight years, um, I'm going to admit, I was a little embarrassed to admit that I worked there because I did not, I thought the tour was terrible. <laughs> um, there were plexiglass barriers from the floor to the ceiling yeah. in every single room, separating the visitors from the artifacts. So it felt like you were looking through like a foggy window. Um, Betsy, we did have Betsy Ross interpreters, but they were not as well-trained as our Betsy Ross interpreters are today. And Betsy would be sitting on the side of the plexiglass as you and say, oh, see that, that hammer there? Yeah, I use that to, to you know, um, put tacks in my chairs. And it was just, it was a very awkward experience. And like I said earlier, it was focused primarily on the flag. And that was the only story we told. Um, so when mm -hmm. I had the opportunity to become director, I was like, number one, we're removing these barriers because the directors prior to me had always said, nope, there's no way we can accommodate this many people because we're the ninth Prior to the pandemic, I'm not sure what the stats are now, but prior to the pandemic, we were the ninth most visited historic house museum in the country. So the directors wow. prior to um, my becoming director would say, we can't remove the barriers because there's no way to protect the artifacts from 300,000 people walking through the house every year. Um, so when I became director, I'm like, let's just see. Let's see what we can do. So the first room we worked on was the upholstery shop. Um, we removed the floor to ceiling barrier and put up um, a half barrier that just sort of blends in with the architecture of the room. Um, one of the sacrifices that we had to make was we did remove the 18th century artifacts in that room and replace them with reproductions. And then we put Betsy inside the room. And now Betsy um, works on actual upholstery projects in that space in front of the visitors. Um, she can use all the supplies and materials in there. And she makes projects that we then use to furnish the house. So our Betsy Ross interpreters, I think at this point, pretty much every piece of fabric that's hanging in the house from the, the mattresses to the bed curtains, window hangings. I mean, you name it. The entire house was literally furnished by Betsy Ross. That's amazing. 
and I'm very proud of every stitch that I have taken in every piece of those furnishings. And might I say, they are as well sewn as they are comfortable and beautiful to look at. I'm quite proud of myself to be a trained upholsterer. As a young girl, I came from a working family, my family being a, my father a carpenter, and so it was expected that even as a young girl that I would be a part of a trade, a trade that was appropriate to a woman. And in the upholstery trade, men shall do part of the trade, some of the more arduous tasks, but much of the sewing will be done by women. And tis what I learned as a young girl. It's very interesting. I doing a little research for the show. I will admit that I didn't know much about, um, you know, turn of the century or you know, Quaker women of your era. I shall uh, forgive thee, my dear. Thou <laughs> did not. But I found it very interesting a, um, a Quaker approach to the fact that women were were fully educated. They weren't. They didn't get a substandard or a secondary or a, a second to a, a man's education. They got an equal education. Correct. This is very true indeed. Um, there is a value in women. Um, William Penn, many know of Pennsylvania, and, and of course, and named after William Penn's father, uh, but it, certainly he also said that in, in the sense that in sexes, there is no difference. In other words, in the eyes of God, we might have a different sphere between a man and a woman, but the equality in the eyes of God is that a man is equal to a woman, a woman is equal to a man, no difference. And therefore there is, as thou hast said, a great value upon education. And I was educated learning how to read, how to write, and penmanship, and, and all the rudiments of arithmetic also. It's interesting to think that some of that was lost and how, how uh, progressive that feels um, considering the time and how it was handled, how things were elsewhere. It's, uh, but it, it, again, I, I didn't know much about um, Quakerism. Is that, a, is that how you say it? Quakerism? <laughs> but then I was, I was learned a little bit more and I'm pleased for that. And as Gina had said regarding children, when she remembers as a child that she had gone and had not learned much, I believe that it is one of our greatest pleasures for myself to be able to visit with the children and to be able, able to even ask them simple questions. What is a thimble? Does thou know how to sew? And then to show the children. And the children take great delight in learning unusual things, such as what is a bed stuffed with? Uh, perhaps uh, the ladies here will know. Uh, my dear Louise, what is a bed stuffed with? I'm thinking maybe the chicken feathers that are missing out of Gina's chicken coop. I don't know. <laughs> uh, Gina, <laughs> does thou know what is a bed stuffed with? So it would have been stuffed with, your time period would have been stuffed with... Um... Probably some, some form of down, a rag or two, if you had rags, cotton, and leftover clothing material because you didn't waste anything. Well, that has gotten very close in some of the ideas. As I love to say, it is the down that is the finest. Uh, the goose feathers. I will apologize, Louise. If thou shalt be sleeping upon chicken feathers, they <laughs> shall be sticking thee all night long. But other substances will be used. Um, horse hair. A hair mattress, 
curled horsehair will be done. And so therefore the ones who are not as rich, they can be able to have straw, a straw tick as it might be called, oh, not the little insect ticking. <laughs> That's the name of the cloth. Yes. And then, wait, Betsy, don't you hand tuft the mattresses to make them nice and firm? Well, now, it depends upon whether there wishes for them to be firm. A hair mattress is going to be firmer, um, but a feather bed is going to be soft and warm, and it will not be used in the summertime. I can promise that. Much too warm <laughs> in the summertime. But many that times it is what someone can afford. And again, for the children, they think. What would they like inside of their beds? They tell me of unusual substances. They tell me foam is in their beds. And I ask them, how do they put the foam from the ocean waves inside of a bed? I don't understand that. <laughs> it was that the wait a minute, was was that the invention of the waterbed then? <laughs> I have not the slightest idea. <laughs> So, Lisa, tell us a little bit more that's going on in the museum as well. You have a Flag Day celebration. Yeah, yeah. so um, Flag Day is one of those holidays that not many people know about. Uh, fortunately, my dad was born on Flag Day, so all my life I've known that June 14th <laughs> is an important day. Um, so Flag Day is basically the flag's birthday. It's the day that the Second Continental Congress passed the flag resolution, um, which I'm sure Betsy would be happy to share the flag resolution with you. I would very happily um, to be able to make sure that everyone can hear this. Louise, might I impose oh upon thee? Does thou have yes. the ability to read this resolution? I do, I do. All right, from the top. Resolved, June 14th. 1777. Might I have this stop right there, my dear? I understand that has the sweetest voice that everyone could hear, but imagine a resolution such as this might have been read in the, the town uh, square. And so therefore, I must give it a little more power in the way that it's read. So read it with a little bit more authority, as if that was a man, <laughs> my dear. Yes, thou understand. I'll just take it as a strong woman instead. Okay. Resolved, June 14th, 1777. Now that was better, but it sounds so much better to roll the R. Resolved! <laughs> yes, now let me hear thee, my dear, please. Okay, I gotta get a little bit further away from my mic, otherwise the editor is going to throw something at me. Okay. Oh, roll an R. Uh, resolved! Yes. Ooh, that just got high pitch. What the hell was that? June 14th, 1777 that the flag of the United States be made of 13 stripes, alternate red and white, and that the union be 13 stars, white in a blue field, representing a new constellation. Oh, that was beautifully red, my dear, beautifully red. <laughs> uh, but listen to what thou had just read. Uh, and if I would ask some questions regarding this First resolution, which was written a year after I made my first flag for George Washington when I was a young widow and when I was called by the name Betsy Ross. Did that resolution that thou just read tell us which direction the stripes on the flag should be, horizontal or vertical? Does it tell us? Does not. It does not. Does the resolution tell us that the stars should be in um, a circle? It does not. A square? 
No. Does it tell us how many points should be on each star? No, but I did hear there was a little bit of controversy about that. Ah, no, that is what I would like to speak of. May I please, if that Absolutely. would not mind, I would The floor love, is yours. I will keep it quite short to have an understanding that when I made my first flag for Washington, he had brought a drawing of what he wanted me to sew, and the stars upon it were to be six-pointed, um, as were upon Washington's own flag, his standard, as we might call it. And I, being a bit of a rebel, I told Washington that I thought that a five-pointed star was going to be much, much better. And of course, there would be the curiosity of why it would be better, and I'm going to be blunt and tell everyone because it's easier <laughs> for me to make. <laughs> I thought it was an excellent reason. And it was not Absolutely. just that I knew that I would have one less point to sew if I had a five-pointed star instead of a six-pointed star. Instead, I took a small piece of paper, and I know that no one can see what I'm doing at this moment, but nevertheless, I am folding for Louise and Gina a small piece of paper to create the shape of a cone. And when it is done, just the way that I will fold my cloth, I showed to George Washington that if I cut it one time, creating a triangle, and that loud noise that was just heard was my scissors snipping that piece to show that when it was done, what I would be able to have created without any difficulty is a perfect five-pointed star. Now, no one can see how this is done as we are listening together, but I love to show those who come to visit my home and let them understand that this small little trick that I shall show to the children and to the adults, is it not a woman's contribution hmm. to the flag? A working woman's contribution. It is nothing more than a small sewing trick that we always think of everything in the formation of our government as being done by men. We must remember, tis women who also have a hand in how our government came about and how our nation came to be born. And I, Betsy, was a part of that. I felt like I should have had my hand over my heart the entire oh, time. Oh my dear. <laughs> I could hear thy heart beating. I could, I could. But if thou can understand better about the work that will go into a flag, as well as the work that will go into upholstery goods, thou will remember again the work that went into forming this nation. And tis that which I oftentimes shall desire to share with those who come to visit with me. Gina, it sounds like you got to pack up the kids as soon as you can and um, take them up to meet Betsy. Um, when do you reopen? Lisa, are, are you guys, are you reopened? We are. Yeah, we we reopened in August with, um, you know, some modifications for the safety of our staff and the visitors. Uh, we are not open daily just yet, but we're hoping to do so soon. Um, but we will be open daily uh, the week of Flag Fest, which is what we were talking about earlier. Um, so currently we're open Thursday through Monday. Um, but for June 13th through the 19th, we will be open daily for special events to celebrate National Flag Week which is the week in which Flag Day falls. So at the Betsy Ross House, we've been celebrating Flag Day since 1891, 
um, with the only a few exceptions. Last year was one of those exceptions because of the pandemic. Um, but which I think is really interesting because as I said earlier, we became a museum in 1898, but the celebrations of Flag Days have been occurring at the Betsy Ross Sound since 1891. And this is a fun fact that I should have mentioned earlier because it was very relevant to you. Um, the Betsy Ross House before it museum was a museum was actually a tavern. Uh, so it was in private ownership. Um, a German woman named Amelia Mund owned it and she called it the, the Flag House Tavern and had a sign in her window that said, this is where, she didn't say Betsy Ross, she said, Mrs. John Ross stitched the first American flag. And you can come in to the room, which is now the upholstery shop, and have yourself an ale and drink in the room where, you know, Betsy Ross did her work, um, which I think is so fun. That is um, fun. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, so, um, and that's another story we tell at the Betsy Ross House. Lots of stories to share that appeal to, I mean, anybody. Um, but anyway, back to Flag Fest. So yeah, so we're celebrating with special events each day, including a special flag raising ceremony each day of the week to, to open the, the house every day. Um, that's at 10 o'clock every day. Um, we have Betsy Ross herself will be there to do a special flag history program. Um, one of the really great things we do every year on June 14th is a naturalization ceremony. So we invite 13 people to take the oath of citizenship at the Betsy Ross House on Flag Day, um, which is such a moving event. Um, you'd mentioned the suffragists earlier on um, in this program. Uh, we're going to have Alice Paul and Francis Harper there um, speaking with our guests. So uh, yeah, it's a, a week of um, you know really interesting, patriotic, historic, uh, fascinating programming. What what day is um, Alice Paul going to be there? She's one of my favorite. Alice Paul is there on June sixteenth. I, I lived um, in D.C. right down the street from the suffrage house um, on Constitution Avenue for like 10 years. So she's like, literally, I love her. <laughs> and I think it's only because I've been there so many times with um, so many of my family members from New York. Anyway, I feel like I feel like after you mentioned Tavern, can we make a drink for Betsy? Let's do it. Yes. I'd love to. <laughs> now, I realize that Betsy Ross would never drink as a Quaker woman. But well, no, mind me. I believe that for medicinal reasons, uh, that a little bit of brandy is always good for someone. It clears the spirits and the head. And I believe that to be true as well. So I, I will say this: we're gonna make a little, um, we're gonna make a brandy shandy, which is kind of uh, so. Shandies can be made with lemonade or beer or soda water. They don't always have to be carbonated, and. Um, the reason why we chose brandy for um, this drink was because brandy would have been something that was made here in the U.S., um, made from apples. It would have been local, and you would have had it in Philadelphia, Maryland, um, parts of New York, and just really found um, in this region and moving up north. As you went down south, your um, apples were a little bit less readily available, so hence where you got your bourbons and your whiskeys and a little bit... Um, uh, and rise as you started to move down Maryland to North Carolina. So for my Philadelphian um, Betsy Ross, we're going to make a brandy shandy. And what we're going to need for this drink is really very simple. You need two ounces of an apple brandy or a traditional brandy. Um, I chose a Catoctin Creek brandy because they are local. They're in Virginia. They're made with Virginia apples. So they're indigenous. And we... <laughs> uh, 
I, <laughs> um, one of uh, so it's funny. Catoctin Creek is uh, definitely is uh, is not too far from. Um, it is it's right there on uh, Mount Vernon Estate on the other side, more going more towards Leesburg. So, uh, if you've ever been to Mount Vernon, which um, is one is wonderful in itself, it's massive. Like everyone always assumes that it's some small little place, but it's like I believe. 80 acres so it does touch other parts of um the city anyway so this drink super simple right we're going to take the two ounces of brandy we're going to pour it into into your shaker tin and i have a jefferson cup is that quite good enough to use absolutely a jefferson cup? and it, and and later learned or has changed to be using a julep cup so we adopted that change in cocktails can you hold that up Betsy? is that okay for a second can you hold up your cup? Oh, thanks. So if you see, so, you know, when we make this cocktail, we'll hold it up and take a picture for the show. But that cup is one of the most, was one of the original reasons why a julep, um, also invented in the United States, also said to be invented at, um, you know, people argue and say it's from, it is from Kentucky. A lot of people say that it was invented in the White House um, using mint in a Jefferson cup with brandy and not bourbon. So, Argument is is uh, is a miss. You know, bartenders weren't very good at keeping records. But what can you do? Anyway, so we have the two ounces in your in your um, shaker tin, and then we're gonna add um, one ounce of lemon juice, and then we're gonna add one ounce of simple syrup. And you can use any simple syrup. You you know, if you have something that um, you know you have a flavor that you want to use, you have hibiscus simple syrup. You have you know whatever you like. Um, one thing that's really fun to do with this drink is take some crushed berries and have you, and if you're in this area, um, in the U S and it is, you know, it's getting into the spring months, you might have June berries. You may have, um, you know, June berry is the beginning of a raspberry or a blackberry. It's kind of like a marriage in between. And that would have been something that was found, um, also in Philadelphia, um, where you have like an older recipes, you might have a Juneberry pie. So we're going to use, I'm going to use raspberries in here. So we have apple brandy, raspberries, lemon, and then a little bit of simple syrup. And we're going to use about one ounce of that. And I'm just going to put this in my shaker tin. And I'm going to add the simple syrup. And we're just going to give it a little shake. And then we're just going to serve it up in a chilled glass. And that's it. Super, very simple. I gotta grab some um, ice. What kind of I, what kind of glass do you like that? And then a cocktail glass. Well, you know, I I think what would be really fun is if we, you know, in a cocktail glass you could use anything, right? Um, it's kind of up to you. Uh, I mean, I'm using I'm just gonna use a stainless steel cocktail glass, and I'm gonna give this a shake. Let me hold this up. Give this a little shake. I have a shrub glass. Will my shrub glass do? Oh, it's a lovely glass. I, I thought that would be quite good. Oh, gracious, everyone's shaking so beautifully. And I was a bit, I'm not so vigorous. Why these women are serious about their shaking. Are they not? They are. That bell. Oh my gosh, I can't believe you have that. So the bell that, uh, that Betsy's holding up right now. Can you do that again? Yes. Is that is that one of the artifacts that you have in the? Is that an artifact or is that or is that just a replica, Lisa? I can promise she would not let me take the real one from my home. 
So that, so the 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 cup that you're using on the bottom, this this drink, if this was if this was 1777, 100% probably didn't have ice in it. It may have had a small chunk of ice, but nothing. I had an awful terrible time getting it out of my ice cellar. Yes. I will admit that. Yes, I'm sure. I am sure. <laughs> so just going to shake it. Out. That's it. We're just going to strain it into the cup. And then again, if you miss anything, you can go to designateddrinker.show and the recipe will be there for the brandy shandy. Louise, you got to give that love tap, you know, you got to like hit it. I am going to taste mine. Would that be quite allowable if I taste it? Oh, yes. Oh, a toast. A toast. Can we not do a toast? Of course. Hold on. Louise having a little user difficulty. Louise, look. Look. See, it's on the, yes. it's on the tilt. Yeah. Hit it on the side. It's not. Yep. The side oh, there is we go. not tilted. There we, there we go. Good Lord. <laughs> Listen, it's planting season here in Maryland. Did you see my guns right now? I could just take this off. It's no problem. Are we, are not... we straining, double straining, Gina? I'm sorry. No, we're just was... going to, yeah, you could double strain if you like, but you do not have to. You're just going to strain it into a cocktail cup and enjoy. Ooh, mine's a real pretty color because I, I threw some raspberries in too. And I am ready for a toast. Are we, we ready? Shall we do a toast um, that is to our enemies or a toast that will be just to our country? Which toast shall we do? To our country. To our country. To the, country. Well, the enemy one is awfully funny. All right, we, enemies, do it. Go. We, to the enemies of our country, may they have cobweb breeches, a porcupine saddle, a hard-trotting horse, and an eternal journey. Benjamin Franklin. A toast. Cheers. Cheers. Ben. Oh, quite refreshing. Very oh, refreshing. Good. And if you had anything that ailed you, it should take away the pain. Or let us forget it. <laughs> <laughs> delicious all right so now we're gonna make one for lisa yeah yeah lisa you had mentioned so so lisa had mentioned that she's a, a big fan of gin and i thought it was very appropriate if we were going to do time period appropriate cocktails do a washington gin ricky so uh the, so gin ricky was invented in washington dc and if you listened to our show before you definitely know that we love our um, gin Rickies, and we're gonna and we're gonna tell the story of the Gin Ricky one more time. If you have never heard it, uh, so the Gin Ricky was invented um, in a saloon on uh, Pennsylvania Avenue. Um, well, sorry, Constitution Avenue, because that used to be actually like a harbor. And there was a gentleman uh, that was drinking in the saloon, and Colonel Joe used to drink whiskey and soda. And the story has it that a traveler came. And he was um, coming from a ship and then he had a lime and he had a lime with him and he had ordered the drink and he had asked for gin and he put, he put it with the soda. Now, if you know anything about, um, you know, people that were on ships, shipmates, you know, maybe in the military, in the Navy, um, a pirate, whatever you like, they carried the scurvy, they carried the limes to, to cure scurvy. They carried the gin because it came from Britain and it was delicious, but also had medicinal values because it was made from juniper. And all of these things were brought to DC and made popular by Colonel Joe, who was drinking in Shoemaker's Saloon and 
you know, was like, all right, I'll have what he's having pretty much. So if this was like Harry Met Sally, I'll have what he's having. So what they did was they squeezed uh, the juice of one half of a lime into a glass and you drop the lime in the bottom. And then you're gonna fill that glass. Um, sorry, you're gonna add two ounces and we're gonna use a new product actually called Hendrix Lunar, which is a new gin that came from London for us. So well, well, Scotland actually. So we'll try that with it. So we're gonna add that. Then we're gonna fill this with ice. And this is when you can make the decision to add a quarter. You can add a quarter, um, sorry, you can add a quarter ounce of simple syrup or no simple syrup, depending on what you like. It doesn't need any more um, sweetener because the gin is pretty sweet in itself. And I'm just gonna add some ice to this. And I'm using crushed ice this time, just so you could say, so you're gonna, you're gonna basically make it so the lime is at the bottom of the glass and you put crushed ice in there and then you're gonna finish it off with soda water. I 100% love using um, Q soda water because legitimately it has one of the highest um, gas per volume. So it gets really, really, um, really, really uh, uh, bubbly. Now, one of the other things you can use is like Topo Chico. Um, which is another uh, really good soda water that's available in the market. So if you can't get that, try that. Now, for the for the idea of the Ricky, you already have your garnishes in the bottom of the glass. If you feel like you need to put a hat on this, which is adding a little bit more pizzazz, you could put it on the side as well. But not necessary, right? Okay. So, cheers to Lisa and Betsy. And one more toast. This one from George Washington. Okay. To the memory of those heroes who have fallen for our freedom, may justice support what courage has gained. Cheers. Ooh, cheers. cheers. Nice. Oh, that's delicious. That's really good. I just think- I it, could drink these all day. I think, yeah, gin rickies are just so refreshing, beautiful on a, not for you, Betsy, but beautiful on a on a patio off the deck. Just nice warm day. It's gonna take the temperature down a little bit. So Gina, I'm gonna do do our barkeeping one more time. Where are they gonna go get this recipe? You're gonna go to designateddrinker.show for all the tips, tricks, and how tos. Yep. And then also what we'll have is we'll have all the links to what's how to get to the Betsy Ross house, as well as links to get to more information on Flag Day, because that's coming up and everyone's gonna, if you can get out there and go and um, it's good outdoor activity. And there's so many things for kids, for adults, obviously. Um, we'll make sure all those links are not only on the website, but also in our show notes, which if you have your smartphone, you just easily scroll up and they'll be right there for you. Easy, easy, easy peasy, just like this cocktail. You like how I tied that all together, Love Gina? <laughs> I did. I like that. That was real showmanship. All right. So I have a question, and it's not the question Louise thinks. So, Betsy, how many American flags did you actually sew personally yourself? Understanding that what that shall entail is an understanding of who I am now, of my name, Betsy Claypool. When I made my first flag for George Washington, I was a widow, I was alone. I made that flag all by myself. But now I am a producer of flags. Orders will come in 50 flags at a time. I have certainly made 
hundreds of flags and I do not sew them all by myself. I have daughters, I have nieces. And so all together we work upon the flags. But my flags are garrison flags that shall go all the way down to New Orleans. I shall make Indian flags as they will be called going across to the Ohio Valley. And of course, mostly those flags which will be flown by ships. So north, south, east, west, I have truly made hundreds of flags, hundreds. I love that. Gina, Betsy gets around. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> idea. I never thought of it that way. That's delightful. It just sounds so pleasant. <laughs> I love that. Oh, uh, yeah. You can dress a girl up. <laughs> I think, Louise, it's time for us to take that tavern trip and uh, and go to the Betsy Ross house and hang out. Yes. And relive and relive the, the tavern times. Absolutely. I think, Absolutely. I think I'm into it. All right. Gina, I think it's time for your last question. Oh, I don't know who to ask it to. Um, ask both. Why not? Okay. So this is to both of you. And so Betsy and Lisa, here is the deal. In modern times... Uh, people identify themselves with all kinds of different spirit animals, and you may identify yourself with the ox because the ox is, you know, really a, a tough and, and working animal and maybe doesn't get its uh, just due, but without an ox on a farm, you would never survive the winter, right? Because you need to plant all those crops. If you could describe yourself or identify yourself with one spirit ingredient, now it could be for food or drink, what would it be and why? Lisa, you go first. Wow. Um, hmm. Could be anything for I, cooking or drinks. This is going to be weird, but I'm nope. going to say tofu. Because <laughs> um, I, well, I'm vegan. I've been a long time vegan. So I use it all the time, but it's very versatile. Um, it's, you know, it can do anything. And I feel like that's kind of me. Like I'm a working mom who's now trying to work from home and deal with my three kids, hybrid schooling and, you know, take care of the house and my husband and a cat. And so I feel like I'm as versatile as a block of tofu. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> I love it. And to you, Betsy. Uh, well, I, I cannot top that. And I say, but is it an animal that thou wishes or an object? Or it, it's an ingredient for either food or for beverage. An ingredient yes. that will be in a food. Well, then I suppose I shall be honest. I am a tomato. Oh, a nightshade. And see, well, why? Oh, my. And that sounds so awful. Um, but, uh, and then when thou puts it that way, then I have a fondness for them. Uh, thou does know that they were first called love apples. Oh, no. And therefore, a tomato, many times in the old receipts that will be written, they will be written as an, a love apple. And since I have been married three times, that seems quite appropriate. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> love it. Love it. I love it. I will never forget that answer. And tofu. Yes. <laughs> two, two very unique answers. I love it. All right. To, to all that you do to make us 
so much smarter and understand American history and our the roles that women play, even though we often don't get that side of the history. Thank you so much for bringing it to our attention. We can't wait to come and hang out. Let's go drink ale in the Betsy House, Ross, Gina. <laughs> Absolutely. Cheers. Cheers, ladies. The Designated Drinker Show is produced by Missing Link, a podcast media company that is dedicated to connecting people to intelligent, engaging, and informative content. Also in the Missing Link lineup of podcasts is Roger That, a podcast dedicated to guiding you through the haze of dementia, led by skilled caregivers Bobby and Mike Carducci. Now, if you're looking for a whole new way to enjoy the theater, check out Between Acts, an immersive audio theater podcast experience. Each episode takes you on a spellbinding journey through the works of newfound playwrights, from dramas to comedies and everything in between. Find Missing Link's League of Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe, download, and review the shows. Your review helps our shows reach new audiences. To find out more about Missing Link, visit missinglink.company. That's missinglink.company.